0: O God, in whose service is perfect freedom, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I told my friend Misty that I had found a youth group, an Assemblies of God youth group, And it was just like the church camp we went to last summer. People were excited about God. The music was like a rock concert. I wasn't totally sold on this hand-raising-while-singing thing in light of these biblical injunctions against worship that draws attention to yourself and making loud, long prayers in public. But beggars can't be choosers. I was the new kid in a new school, 16 years old, and a novice at church going. I was a beggar for friends, for love, for meaning. One of the many uh, strange things that folks said at this church was the phrase, uh, when Jesus comes back. They just throw it out there every once in a while. Well, unless Jesus comes back, we'll meet meet you at Culver's for frozen yogurts. We'll have church next week, unless Jesus comes first. And I laughed initially, right? But this was totally straight-faced, this this phrase. This was all news to me. The rapture, they called it. Maybe you've heard of it. The way they told it, Jesus was coming back, like, really soon. So you had to be ready all the time. Now, nobody could predict it, of course, no one would say, but the pastor received a word from God and confided to me, his star pupil, 2014, he said sagely. So it looks like none of you made it either. But feeding this expectation to an already anxiety-driven child was like throwing gas on a live flame. Like, what if Jesus came back when I was playing video games? Would he understand that maybe I needed a break every once in a while from spreading the gospel? What if he came back when I was with my boyfriend? I became convinced that no explanation would be good enough to keep me from hell and fiery torment. And I started to have vivid nightmares about going there. Now, a couple of hucksters made millions of dollars off of that same anxiety and fear that I experienced as a teenager by writing a whole series of books on being left behind. Now, what was left behind in those books was actually any shred of responsible theology, but I've got an ax to grind, clearly. (laughs) The rapture, as you might have popularly understood it through the lens sold by these religious profiteers dispensing so-called theology, can be summed up pretty handily. The world is bad, right? One day soon, God will come and disappear the ones who are the real, true Christians off to a heavenly paradise. And everyone else who's left behind will be left to suffer eternal torment as the bad world ends in various disasters. Or, I heard about it another way from a theologian, uh, N.T. Wright, one day, the rapture, one day, you'll look outside and you'll see all these people starting to float up into the clouds and you'll say to yourself, well, I'll be damned. Today's gospel is one of a handful of passages from the Bible that is used to prop up the shifty 19th century innovation of popular Christianity that we know as the rapture. Two will be working in a field, one will be taken and another left. Two will be grinding at a mill, one taken and the other left. But even just a rudimentary glance at what Jesus here says here contradicts these popular images that we've been given. What does Jesus say immediately preceding the description of those taken and those left? That it will be like the days of Noah, where a flood came and swept people away. Who are the ones to be taken? The ones who get wiped out by the flood are the unrighteous, the evil in the world, not the righteous, right? The righteous are the ones who are left behind. And this is N.T. Wright again, more seriously. It should be noted that being taken in this context means being taken in judgment. There is no hint here of a rapture, a sudden supernatural event that would remove individuals from terra firma. It is a matter, rather, of secret police coming in the night, or of enemies sweeping through a village or city and seizing all they can. Death is coming, and Jesus views this as judgment. The desired state, as Wright points out, is actually to be left behind, to remain. When we hear Jesus' story, of course, what should come to mind is the Passover, the central event of the Jewish imagination, that those who are sealed will be the ones who will be passed over by death. Who will remain. And in Jesus' time, the people hearing this, right, they were living in fear under Roman occupation. They'd find the image of a government coming in and taking someone that they knew, someone that they loved, a familiar one. And actually now it's a familiar one for us, too. There are no stories in the Bible of God whisking away his beloved people to a supernatural afterlife where they can be happy forever. There is, though, another story in the Bible, and it gets told over and over in different ways. And here's how this story basically goes. God loves the world, cherishes it, the actual world that we live in, and entrusts it to certain people. Humans can't handle it. Violence and degradation follow wherever we spread. So God acts on our behalf to redeem the good land through a group of people or a family. Who comes to mind for you when you think of this story, right? Abraham, Noah, Israel, Moses, Joshua. You know these stories. And as the story develops... I think it's interesting that God's promise, given about a specific land originally, flowing with milk and honey, expands. It grows larger until this picture of redemption is one that's pictured for the entire cosmos. And the people to which this promise was given, through whom God intended to work out this redemption in the good world, The people change too. A flood of violence comes every time. A doom of our own making visits us, but a holy remnant survives. Eventually that remnant, the ones with whom the promise rests, narrows, right? As opposed to the promise which grows larger and larger, it seems that this focus on the promise contracts and contracts and contracts until it goes from a nation to a family, to a kingly line, till finally it focuses intently on one person, a Messiah. Now this familiar story, they would have all known it, but as we tell it in this room as Christians, there was this shocking twist that entered in. It would be that this one righteous remnant would not be passed over would choose to remain in the violence of the world, would not rise above the flood in the safety of an ark, would not be taken up by fiery chariots, or spared our devouring human wrath. He would be the willing victim of perfect innocence who could finally stop returning violence for violence. The other cheek would actually be turned unto death and it would break the story that has defined us throughout our entire existence. Today's the first day of Advent, the first day of our new church year. And in Advent we say we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, and we await his coming in glory. It is not really waiting for his birth. We know the truth of that. We're not waiting to be whisked away, either. We do still have these old stories in our hearts, no matter the darkness to which our world descends. We know the stories of God who acts to redeem it. Jesus says in our gospel today that this coming again is something that apparently can be missed if you're not looking. Like when you wake up and realize that at some point in the night, your truck was rummaged through. Two were walking down the street, and one was occupied replaying the grievances of the day, and one saw Christ. Some folks sat at church, and one caught up on his texts, another made a grocery list in her head, and one, after a long, dark season of absence and waiting, saw Christ.